we're talking about building community in our midst. And uh, one thing that we've been looking at is a, a biblical foundation for these uh, groups. And one thing that we wanted to uh, make sure that we understand, see here if we're going the right way, um, <coughs> there we go, uh, is that, that there are priority, and this is just kind of way in review, we really believe that Scripture underscores the importance of building relationships in a church. And that can't always happen on a Sunday morning. We also want to offer a place where intimate relationships and fellowship can happen. And they want to be founded on sound doctrine and clear biblical purpose. And we want our church really to be built around these. I mean, one thing I was even uh, reading various material on, on different churches and things like that. And a lot of churches have this right in their, their membership requirements. Before you can be a member of their church, you have to be part of a small group. And that looks pretty good to me. So we'll see what we can do about that in the future. So, but why Grace Care Groups? We've looked at these clear goals from Scripture. First of all, your progressive sanctification. God's setting you apart. It's not justification. Justification is that once in an in a instant when God justifies you. He makes you righteous. He puts on you the righteousness of Christ. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about our position before God. We're talking about our... our uh, uh, practice before God. And sometimes our practice doesn't always line up with our position. Amen? So we want to be con constantly being more uh, sanctified, more changed into the image of Christ each day. Small groups allow that to happen. Mutual care. Sometimes people have needs and we don't even know about them. Well, what would, what would it be like if, if nobody knew about anybody else's needs? Um, that wouldn't be a very dynamic uh, body of Christ. And so we want to make sure that that happens in these small groups. Um, fellowship. We went into detail about fellowship. And today we're going to look at ministry of the Holy Spirit, another means of or a reason for these small groups. But just a quick review here. Last week we looked at the means of fellowship and they were worship God together. In other words, it's not on Sunday morning. It's not about you. It's about the corporate body of Christ coming together. Well, when we come together as a small group, it's probably a little more about you because you're in a smaller group, but for the most part, you're still in a group. And so you want to come together, worship God together. We want to pray for each other. We want to use our spiritual gifts to kind of help each other out and serve one another. Um, we want to carry one another's burdens. We looked at that in Galatians 6. We want to share spiritual experiences. When's the last time you grabbed somebody and said, hey, tell me your testimony? You know, if you haven't heard uh, Sergio's testimony yet, grab this guy up to church and say, share, share, my, share your testimony with him. He's got a great testimony. God just worked dynamically in his family's life and in his life and be, be ready to spend a couple hours with him, but he'll tell you the testimony and it'll be good. So uh, also confessing your sins to one another. That's one of those things that we don't uh, practice very much. And then also correcting one another. And then... Lastly, serving. You know, on Wednesday night, we were kind of reviewing the message, and we talked about, well, out of that list, what are some of the hardest, what are the easiest ones to do, and what are the hardest ones to do? Everybody said, probably worship together, God together, that's pretty easy. Uh, even praying for one another, that kind of, kind of easy. Even serving may be a little easier than confessing your sin or correcting one another. When you get to that level in somebody's relationship where you can walk up to somebody and say, brother or sister, you know, I see this in your life, and it's not good, and we need to change some things. And they're not offended because you have a, a, a basis of a relationship there. That's what the church is supposed to be about. It's not about coming here Sunday morning, pasting a smiley face on your face, sitting down. How is everything? Oh, it's fine. Just fine. That's not what the church is about. 
We're here to, to minister to one another's needs. And if we don't uh, allow people to see those needs and we're not vulnerable in some way, then we're not going to be able to do those things like confess our sins to one another or correct one another. Well, the hindrances to fellowship, we looked at this, self-sufficiency. You come in, you don't need anything. You just think you're self-sufficient, which isn't true because we're all in need of the Lord's help every day. Formality. Sometimes people are formal in their, in their interaction with, with folks. Um, bitterness. Underlying reasons why you don't want to interact, you don't want to have fellowship. Elitism. Kind of you're better than anybody else. That kind of attitude. Well, today we want to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Remember, this is the third one. Progressive sanctification, mutual care, fellowship, and also experiencing and expressing the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. And sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, some people have a tendency to get all weird and woo you know, this kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. All right, We're talking about a real person in the Trinity, and we need to rely on Him just as much as we need to rely on Jesus, just as much as we need to rely on God the Father. But a lot of times we set the spirit aside and we kind of figure, well, you know, can't see it, touch it, whatever. So, you know, it's, it's kind of out of my range of, of understanding. And so we just set him aside. But he's just as real as Jesus, the Son, and God the Father. He's part of the Trinity. Look at what 1 Corinthians 12, and I just want to read for us 1 to 7. Paul writes here, and he's talking about the body. And remember, this body had a lot of problems. Okay, this isn't your, your typical church that you want to hold up and say, boy, this church was a great church. It wasn't. It had major problems. But they still had spiritual gifts. And they were using them some good ways, some bad ways. But look at what he says in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. All right? I don't want you to misunderstand this. I don't want you to not have the information. Somebody who's ignorant doesn't have the right information. You always hear, ignorance is no excuse for the law. You drive down Jefferson, you get pulled over, and you say, oh, I didn't know it was 35. It doesn't matter. They say, ignorance is no excuse for the law. The speed limit's 35 or 30 or whatever it is. And so if you go faster than that, you're going to get a ticket. And they have uh, many signs to, to say that that's going to happen to you. Some of them are kind of cutesy, but they're not too cute when you're sitting there and the guy's writing your ticket. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant you know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols. <laughs> However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one says that Jesus is Lord except what? By the Holy Spirit. You see how instrumental the Holy Spirit is in our Christian lives? The Bible says that you can't even, you can't even be born again without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not just saying, well, you know, I heard non-Christians say before, Jesus is Lord. He's not saying that. Because you can go up to a non-Christian and say, I dare you to say Jesus is Lord. They'll probably say it. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about just uttering words from your lips. All right, he's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about making a declaration that I'm acknowledging Jesus is Lord. See, and that's a side note on this whole thing. We don't make Jesus Lord. I mean, when I hear that, I just want to pull my hair out, but I don't have any, so I can't. And it's kind of frustrating. We don't make Jesus Lord. How many times have you heard somebody share the, the, the gospel with somebody and, well, brother, you know, you just need to repent of your sins and make Jesus Lord. Who are we to make Jesus Lord? He is Lord. 
That's what the Word of God says. We don't make Him Lord. Now, I know what they're saying. They're saying we acknowledge Him as Lord of our life. I understand that. But we need to, words mean things. We need to work, use the, the proper verbiage if we're going to communicate clearly the gospel of Christ. And so he says here, only by the Spirit of God can you say that Jesus is Lord. And what that means is that's, that's a, a way of kind of relating you're born again. That's what happens in your life when you come to a point in your life and you realize it's not all about you. It's, it's not about what you do or, or how hard you work or how many times you go to church or how long you pray or how many books of the Bible you've read. or you know, it, All that doesn't matter if you're outside of Christ. And it's so important for us to understand that all those religious activities that so many of us had been engaged in and previously coming to Christ didn't mean anything to God. He said they're like a filthy rag, something you throw out in the trash. It's only when we come into the, the, the firm understanding that we're a sinner before a holy God and we need to cry out to Him and ask Him to save us. See, it's not about works, beloved. It's not about what you can do. We can all outwork each other if we really put our mind to it. That's not who, how you judge who's going to heaven. It's what's going on in your heart. It's whether in your heart you can say, yeah, Jesus is on the throne of my heart. Jesus is Lord of my life. I acknowledge Him as such. And because of that, I've changed. Not because of who I am, but because of who He is. He changed me. It's a transformation. So many times we think Christianity is addition. You know, we add things. You know, we have this life and then we become religious. So we start going to church and we add all this stuff to our plate. And somehow we think that that earns us favor with God. It doesn't. The only way that we can ever have favor with God is if we cry out to Him and repent of our sins and turn to Him and say, God, I need You to save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we need to do. But that can't happen unless the Spirit's working. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and it just doesn't go anywhere? I've seen people in that situation where they force it. You know, I was one of those people. I was a youth pastor. I used to go out and visit young people. And I remember this one kid lived across the street from the church and took the pastor's daughter. And we went over and we plopped ourselves down in his living room. And we started talking to this kid. And, and you know, I had this slick little presentation and been through the uh, evangelism explosion thing. And, you know, I got him to pray the prayer. And I walked away from there thinking, whoa, this, you know, that's great. God used me to, you know, that kid didn't know Christ and from, from man to the moon. He was probably just praying that prayer to get me out of his living room. You know, and yet I thought somehow that I had some, you know, something to do with this guy's salvation. Now, ultimately, he did come to Christ, and, and, but it wasn't, it didn't really have anything to do with me. And see, the Holy Spirit has to be instrumental in somebody's life when they're, when they're coming to Christ. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that draws them. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts them of their sin. And we need to remember that next time we're sharing with somebody. Don't force it. Now, I always like to leave people coming back for more. You know, they have one question. Sometimes we're praying for somebody. We're praying for somebody. Maybe we're praying for a co-worker. And at work, they just ask you one thing. You know, uh, what church do you go to anyway? And all of a sudden, we're going into this big, you know, long lecture about, you know, their sin and Christ. And maybe God's not opening that door yet. And we have to be okay with that. It's in God's timing. And a lot of times, there's a lot to be said about relational evangelism. There's a lot to be said about building a relationship with somebody and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work in their heart. We're not salesmen. 
We're mere messengers. God transforms their heart. And so he goes on here. And he says, you know, you were Gentiles. You were carried away to these dumb idols. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 4. Look at this. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. In other words, there's different kinds of gifts. They're, they're distributed differently around the body. You don't have the same gifts I do. I don't have the same gifts you do. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. As in the marriage seminar said when we went through that. You know, it's not right or wrong. It's just different. Everybody's gifted differently. How how boring would a church be if everybody had the same gift? I don't know about you, but it'd be pretty boring. And see, God gifts us all in a, in a unique way. And He says here in verse 5, He says, there are differences of ministries, but what? But the same Lord. See, there's some organization to this. It's not just a free-for-all. Hey, I got this gift and I'm going to... No. There's some organization to this. We all serve the same God. We're all under the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ. And he says there are different activities, diversity of activities. But it's the same God who works all in all. See, the problem with the Corinthian church was they were looking at each other going, oh, you got that gift? I want that gift. Why didn't God give me that gift? And they started bickering and fighting. And then the people that had the more prominent gifts, the ones that maybe had the gift to get up and give a prophetic word or, or the gift of languages, something like that, you know, they were kind of showboating it. You know, I don't just have the gift of hospitality. I can get up in front of people and blah, 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 blah. And so Paul had to kind of read the riot act to him. It's not about, you know, which gift you have. It's are you using the gift that God has entrusted to you? He knows your personality. He knows what works for you. And He's gifted us all in a different way. And He works in all of us. And He doesn't always work the same way in all of us. You know, there's some people that come to Christ and man, their life is transformed. They're off the drugs. Everything's great. And, you know, in two years they're pastoring a church. It's just amazing. Somebody like Greg Laurie who grew up basically a surfer dope addict, came to Christ, I think, when he was 16 or 17. He was pastoring a church by the time I think he was 18 or 20. God just gifted him as an evangelist, and, and God just opened up doors in front of him that were just mind-blowing. And it had very little to do with him. He was just obedient to God's call. But he was willing to use the gifts that God had entrusted to him. And that's where we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, are we using, are we expressing the gifts of the Spirit that He has entrusted to us? Verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the what? What's it say there in verse 7? The end of the, the verse. For the profit of who? You? Of me? No, it's of everybody. It says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Once again, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God getting the glory. It's about the corporate church, once again. And then he goes on, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Certain gift. To another one, another gift. A word of knowledge. But it's the same Spirit. To another one, faith by the same Spirit. To another one, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another one, working of miracles. To another one, prophecy. To another one, discerning of spirits. And he goes on this list. To another one, different kinds of languages. To another one, the interpretation of languages. 
But one and the same Spirit works all these things. And look at what it says in verse 11. Distributing to each one individually as who wills? As God wills. Once again, it's not up to us. It's up to God. It's about what God wants to do in our life. And unfortunately, when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, we talk about the experience of the Holy Spirit, you know, sometimes we, we get kind of weird about it. It doesn't have to be that way. Look at this quote. It says, We should make a deliberate effort at the outset of every day to recognize the person of the Holy Spirit. We should continue to walk throughout the day in a relationship of communication and communion with the Spirit, mediated through our knowledge of the Word, relying upon every office of the Holy Spirit's role as counselor mentioned in Scripture. We should acknowledge Him as the illuminator of truth, and of the glory of Christ, we should look to Him as teacher, guide, sanctifier, giver of assurance concerning our sonship and standing before God, our helper in prayer, and as the one who directs and empowers our witness. That's so true. That's what we need to understand. That's what we should be doing every day. We need to go to God every day and yield our life to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to control your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to say, God, I don't want to do what I want to do today. I want to do what you want me to do. You take control of my emotions. You take control of my thought life. You take control of my pocketbook. You take control of my wallet. You take control of whatever. I don't have a pocketbook. My wife thinks I do, but I don't. I have one of those little fanny packs once in a while, and she calls that a purse. So. But I know better. <clears throat> But let me give you a couple examples here to utilize the gifts of our spirit. What do we have to do to get to a point where God is actually using these, uh, using us with these gifts? First of all, in order to experience the gifts of the spirit in our life, what he's already given to us, we need to develop a habit of communing with the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul wrote this. It's kind of the end of the letter there. He says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He says there in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that there's a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We talked about fellowship a couple weeks ago. We know what fellowship is all about. Well, we have that same fellowship, not only with the Son, not only with the Father, but we also have the same fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Is that fellowship of the Holy Spirit a much or, as much a reality in your life daily as is the fellowship that you have with the Son, the fellowship you have with the Father? Or is it kind of set aside? So that's the first thing. We need to commune with the Holy Spirit of God. We're directed in Scripture to do that. We need to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. You can look up those verses over and over again. It tells us how that we grieve the Spirit of God. It's a person. It's not something that's kind of floating around. The Holy Spirit is just as much a person of the Trinity as Jesus Christ is. And we need to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, he says this, It is very instructive that, in, that it is in the context, speaking of grieving the Holy Spirit, in the context of interpersonal relationships that Paul wrote his warning, Do not grieve the Spirit of God. It's always in the context of interpersonal relationships. It's not in the context of 
sexual immorality. He addresses that in Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. It's not in the context of lying and stealing. He addressed that in Ephesians 4, 25 and 28. No, he, he addresses it in the context of interpersonal relationships. Now, granted, it's all sin. But you know what? There's something to be said that God really desires and he understands. When you start to get into relationships, sometimes it gets dirty. Sometimes it gets ugly. You know, I don't know how long, you know, after you were married, the honeymoon was over. You know, and reality set in. This is a real deal. This is a real commitment. You know what? This is even hard work. Being married is hard work. Anybody that would tell you not, they have to be lying. Or I'm just strange. You know, it, it, it's hard work. God takes two imperfect people, puts them together, makes them one, and says, now live together in unity and harmony until you die. You can't do that on your own. What are we thinking? There's no way. We have to rely on the Spirit of God. When we mistreat people or we, we talk harshly, whatever it might be, that grieves the Spirit of God. It really does. And when we do those sins, we have to respond quickly and, 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 and it's the Spirit convicting in our lives. Otherwise, we'll, we'll continue to grieve Him. We need to go to Him in confession and say, Father, forgive me. Thirdly, we need not only to commune and to uh, not avoid grieving the Spirit, to avoid grieving the Spirit, but we also need to avoid quenching the Holy Spirit. We need to avoid quenching the Holy Spirit. And, and basically what I mean by this is, you know, you've often heard the best defense is a what? Is a good offense, okay? Well, the same thing here. And I would ask you this morning, are you stirring up the gifts that God has placed in you by the Holy Spirit? He's given you gifts through the Holy Spirit, only you have. I mean, maybe other people have the same gift, but not the same personality as you. They're not the same person as you. God gave them to you for a certain reason. And He didn't just give them to you to look at and go, ooh, these are nice gifts. I don't know if you ever uh, saw the, the little video called uh, The Music Box. I think I showed it in, in a church here somewhere. But this guy finds a little box. He's, it's, the little clip starts off and he's just, you know, going to work at the factory and it's just boring music and, you know, he's just worn out and he's on his way home and it's the same thing every day. They show this clip and doing the same thing. It's just this monotonous life he has. Comes home, slops down dinner, goes to bed, you know, just same thing. And one day he's coming home from work and he sees this little box in the street. And he walks up to it and he kind of looks at it and he picks it up and he opens it up. As soon as he opens it up, all of a sudden he hears this, Hallelujah! Closes it real quick. And it's kind of an illustration that, wow, he found salvation. And so he takes this and he opens it up. Finally, he starts dancing around. He's just overjoyed. His whole life is transformed. And he takes it home. He walks in the house and he's all chipper. And his wife and his kid are looking at him like, What's wrong with you? What happened to you, man? This, this is not normal. And he's holding this box close to his, his chest and he runs in the bathroom and he's hiding it from him. He doesn't want him to know. And he opens it up a little bit. Hallelujah. Oh, he's just so excited. He found this, this, this just thing that transformed his life. And the time comes in this show, he's going back and forth, takes it to work, and he's just happy as all get out. Finally, he wakes up. He's woken up one night by these angels who are actually in this little box. They're the singers. And uh, uh, they tap him on the shoulder. And they wake him up out of his sleep. And he's like, what are you doing? 
And he goes, hey, you're not supposed to hoard this thing to yourself. You need to share it. You need to share it with those around you. And he's like, no, no, she won't understand. Don't even try. And they just start singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And she wakes up and she's like, ah, freaked out at first. But then she realizes, wow, what joy this is. And the kid comes in and it transforms the whole family. You know, sometimes we grieve the Spirit of God. We quench the Spirit of God. We lose that joy because we're not stirring up the gifts that He gave us. We're not using them to serve others when God is prompting us. He wants us to. I want to ask you this morning, are you obeying the Spirit's prompting when He says, hey, you know what? You need to call this person. You need to go visit this person. Or you, you need to you know, go buy this guy lunch or, or whatever. Or you need to use your gift in this area or that area. Don't quench the Spirit. You know, every time we get together, we can't rely on what happened last week. You know, every time the body of Christ gets together, we need to rely on a fresh visitation of the Spirit of God. He needs to fill us anew. We need to rely on Him. There's no other way to get apart from that. Get around that. We need to be in His presence. If we're not, if we're not inviting the Holy Spirit to meet with us here, there's no point to this meeting. And each of us has that responsibility to seek the Holy Spirit and be sensitive to what He wants to accomplish in our lives. Wayne... Grudem writes, wrote this, he's a theologian, he says, we must recognize that these activities of the Holy Spirit are not to be taken for granted. And they do not just happen automatically among God's people. Rather, the Holy Spirit reflects the pleasure or displeasure of God with the faith and obedience or unbelief and disobedience of God's people. The Holy Spirit gives stronger or weaker evidence of the presence and blessing of God according to our response to Him. That's so true. To utilize the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, we need to be communing with Him. We need to not grieve Him. We need to avoid quenching. But we also need to arrive at our meetings expecting the Spirit of God to kind of give us a little boost. He's, that's what He's here for. He wants to fill us. He wants us to, 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 to see what God wants to do in our lives. We're no longer here just to Look around and see what goes on. God has a purpose for us. We no longer just see things. We want to observe things. We no longer simply just attend something. We want to actually participate in something. We don't want to just become selfish consumers. Instead, we want to carry out God's purpose for our lives as we contribute through the gifts of the Spirit to the body of Christ. And that's what we hope these, get, these groups, as we form them over a period of time, as they're formed, hopefully, you know, you're going to become part of this. And God's going to use you in a way that maybe right now you would say, I feel uncomfortable about that. That's okay. Sometimes God wants you to get out of your comfort zone. You know, I know some people say, you know, small groups, oh, I don't know, I just, you know, put me in a big crowd, I'm fine, but give me in a small group. You know what? Trust God in this. You know, and we're going to see this morning, this is what they did in the New Testament. That's what they did. And if God laid it down as a mandate, don't you think that somehow He wants to encourage us to follow in those footsteps of the original church? I want to read something here for you that 
You can read that on the screen. I'll read it in a second. But this is actually out of a, a, a little article by Dave Harvey. And I just want to read this little kind of snippet of a story to you. It says, The silence was deafening. Mark had just been pitched a compelling vision of his future for the next president by the next president of a Fortune 500 company. The vision involved a lucrative salary, some serious perks, and a position as his personal assistant. Yes, sir, opportunity was certainly knocking. More power, more challenge, and plenty of income were only a handshake away. Many, went, many men wait their whole lives for this. At that moment, though, Mark was just searching for a diplomatic way to say no. Don't get me wrong, Mark enjoyed his work and he did it with excellence. But he knew that unspoken costs and compromises would accompany this new position. Evenings at the office, weekends away from the home, a life preoccupied with business. He mentally reviewed the checklist as his boss waited for his response behind his desk. The issue was not just family values or time away from his wife. This opportunity posed a threat to something which had become part of the fabric of Mark's Christianity and the reason for much of his spiritual growth. In a flash, Mark realized this new position might compromise a higher vision God had given him for his life. A vision to be committed to the local church. Mark said no. He turned down the offer. Four years later, he had no regrets at all. See, the most important decision a person will ever make is whether or not he will be devoted or she will be devoted to Jesus Christ. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. That decision is before you here today. If you haven't made that decision, if you can't sit here today and say, yes, I've trusted Jesus Christ and my Lord and Savior and He's transformed my life. And beloved, it's not just about holding on to something that happened 20 years ago at some camp when you raised your hand and you haven't seen any presence of God in your life since. That's not true transformation. I'm talking about a true radical transformation of your life. That's what God wants. He wants to make you His own. That's the most important decision you will ever be faced with or make to become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But I think there's a second decision. The devotion to Jesus cannot be effectively implemented without a devotion to the local church. See, we can talk about small groups all we want. We can talk about using your spiritual gifts all you want. We can talk about all these things. But unless we have a priority that focuses on the local church and the importance of it. You know, I tease Hassan once in a while because when he's leading up here, he'll say, come on, church, or whatever. I used to tease him about that. And I thought, you know what? That's a good reminder of who we are. We're the church of Christ, His bride. He laid down His life for the church. Do you think it matters to God? I think it matters to God. I think the church is very important to God. His son died for the church. And yet so many times we forget that. 
We forget what Mark remembered that God had convinced him that there was a higher priority in life and that's where I wanted to be. That higher priority was his commitment to a local church. See, we've gotten away from that in our culture. The, the church used to be the hub of any society. First building they built in a town was usually a church. It was at the church social hall where they had all the square dances. I mean, the, the church was the hub of that community. It was the hub of every family. That's just the way it was. What has happened? What has happened is the focus has been taken off the church as the hub of our society. And now it's just one of the spokes in our busy lives as the wheels spin round and round every day. And maybe if we can fit it in somewhere, we'll be lucky. That's our attitude toward the church. And it's sad because Christ died for this church. His, I mean, He gave up His body for the church. And I'm not just talking about Grace Bible Church, obviously. I'm talking about the church of Christ. All those who put their faith and trust in Christ. You can react to Mark's decision to that, to that story I just told you in a lot of different ways. Some, some people may look at that promotion. Hey, you know, he turned down God's blessing in his life. What a fool. Even though it would have compromised his weekend hours and his extra responsibilities maybe in the local church, it didn't matter doesn't matter to some people. Still others might feel that Mark was too fanatical in his convictions and, and, and God is, is, is most glorified when we moderate our views in the world. Some might actually think it's more important for Mark to make a career growth a higher priority than a spiritual growth. In other words, seek first your career and its bounty and all God's blessing will be added to you. I think that's what we believe today. I really do. Not only is that perspective unbiblical, it's foolishly short-sighted. The most important decision a person will ever make is whether or not they'll be devoted to Jesus Christ. But that devotion to Jesus Christ can't be effective and it can't be implemented in somebody's life if they're not devoted to the local church. That's why... When we're talking about small groups, this isn't a, just an ends to a mean. It's not. We're not looking at it that way. It's part of. We want it to become part of who we are, part of our fabric. A few years ago, Newsweek ran a cover story on baby boomers and religion, and it, it, and it really kind of shocked the evangelical church. And what they said was this. It concluded. The article concluded with this quote, Some of the least demanding churches are now in the greatest demand. Let me say that again. Some of the least demanding churches, just kind of come, hang out, go home, no demands on you at all, are the now in the, the greatest demand. That may be true, but it's not healthy. That's not what Christ has called us to be. It's, it's certainly not scriptural. When we look in the book of Acts, turn over to Acts 2. When we look in the book of Acts, we find a devoted people. We find people who are very devoted to the cause of Christ. 
They were willing to forsake the world in order to jump into a community which was called the church, God's people. Today we need a high view of the church. For some reason, our view of the church has just fallen into the gutter. We just think it's something we do on Sunday. Without a high view of the church, our understanding of and commitment to small group ministry will be incomplete. It's not going to work if we don't have a high view of the church. Look at what Elton Trueblood said. He says, perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all. And what is worse, he goes on, he says, they do not think it's strange that they're not involved. It's just okay. You just go on Sunday and you do church. It's important for us to understand that when Peter talked here in Acts 2, we, we read this, this, this scenario here in Acts 2, the birth of the church, what was going on. Let me just read these couple verses for you here. Verses 40 and 42. It says, And with many other words he testified and he exhorted them. This is Peter. And he said, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Their lives were changed. The baptism didn't save them. That's not what it's saying. It's saying they came to Christ and they wanted to follow Christ in believer's baptism. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. In one day. In one message. I mean, that's like, you know, on the level of like Billy Graham or, or Greg Laurie or, or somebody like that. I mean, that's amazing. And this is the beginning of the church. They didn't have any organization. They didn't. Can you imagine if all of a sudden 3,000 people showed up here? I mean, I, I'd want to just scream and go home. I, I wouldn't know what to do. I mean, have you ever been to one of these mega churches? I mean, you've got to hire the police to do traffic control. I mean, oh my goodness. It's incredible. Well, that's what happened in one day. And it says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. I want us to look at these three steps quickly in closing that we see in this New Testament church. First of all, they forsake the, they, they forsook the world. They came out from the world. They heard the, the message of the gospel and they were saved. They gladly received the word. What was he telling them? What word was he telling them? He was saying, be saved from a perverse generation. That's what he says there in verse 40. That was Peter's message. And it says that they gladly received it. That's okay. We're all right with that. We understand that when, when we come to Christ, we need to forsake the world. That's kind of obvious. Secondly, it says there that about 3,000 souls were what? Added to them added to the original 12, to the, the basis core of the, of the church. They added them to them. They not only came out of the world, but they came into the church. See, addition is more than just this mystical joining to the, the universal body of Christ. 
I believe it, it really means practically coming together and joining with those of common faith in a local body. That's what we're called to do. It's clearly expressed throughout the New Testament. How else would Peter urge pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5, 2 to 3 to shepherd those under your care if you had no membership? How would you know who was under your care? Or to shepherd those who are entrusted to you. See, there's an idea here that, that goes beyond just showing up for church. It's, it's, it's making a commitment. Jesus expressed the same assumption about the church when He explained how to deal with somebody who sins against you in Matthew 18. Historically, commitment to one church has always been a central feature of faith in the Christian world. It was a non-negotiable for all believers. That was just the way it is. And the commitment usually was expressed through the privilege of church membership. Now, don't get excited. Church membership doesn't mean that you get an extra Krispy Kreme after the service or you know somebody brings you coffee while you're sitting here. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about commitment. We're not talking about perks. Throughout the centuries, membership had been practiced in, in a very practical way for, for pastors to understand what the boundaries of their congregation were, what it was, who were they responsible for. In the early church, membership was often formalized through what they call a sponsor system. In the early church, if you want to become a member of the church, now we understand that doesn't... I'm talking about being committed to the local church, not the greater body of Christ. Obviously, if you become a Christian, you're the member of, of, of Christ's church. But they always had local bodies, and they were always committed to them. And each prospective member had to present a witness to make sure that they were living right, to make sure that they had a commitment to Christ. As a matter of fact, sometimes there's been, in history, there's been uh, kind of facts that, that tell us that membership was so esteemed in the local church that instruction for new members sometimes could last up to three years. I mean, our membership class is about three weeks, beloved. All right? I mean, they were very protective of the church because they had a very high view of the church. Why? Because it was only recently that Jesus died for the church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed this. He says, It is our failure as Christian people to understand what our church membership means. The dignity, the privilege, and the responsibility. That causes most of our troubles. Our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament church and its teaching and concerning and concern for the church. God doesn't call us out of a corrupt generation so we can kind of just meander aimlessly on the horizon over the Christian landscape. A meeting here, a teaching there, maybe an occasional small group here once in a while when we feel like it. You know, we've been called out, but we also are called to be added in. All believers should be committed to a local church that cares for their souls, equips them for ministry, and benefits from their service.
I mean, why would you go to a church that you're not reaping any benefits? Why would you go to a church that you're not getting anything? You wouldn't. Unless it was just a routine. Somehow ease your conscience to go to a church. No, you'd want to find a place that builds you up, that edifies you. Something's going on. Sometimes that's personality driven. Sometimes it's different things for different people. I don't know. But I mean, the call in Scripture is to find a local church and be committed to it. The church isn't supposed to be an accessory to our Christian life. That's what it's become. Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage in Acts says this, that that day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. <laughs> they were signed up. That's what it says. I mean, that's a good way to put it. I think we put more credence in signing up for Little League or Pop Warner or, or a Fantasy League or whatever than we do signing up with a local church. According to Acts 2, God wants to move each of His children beyond just being called out of the world. That's one step. But also being added into the local church. But there's a third thing here. He wants us to have a devotion for the local church. He wants us to be fixated on divine Pursuits. And I think that it's important for us to kind of look at what this looks like. Because when we talk about devotion, we're not just talking about some vague term. Douglas Wilson said this, while a church or a, while a small group may be part of a church, it is not the substitute for the church. It's just not. The, the reason we gather here on a Sunday morning is because we're commanded to do so, first of all. And it builds us up in our faith, hopefully. It helps us grow in our walk with Christ. It keeps us accountable. That's what it's all about. And so when we go to a small group, it's not, okay, well, if I don't go to church, then I'll go do a small group. It's not about that. <laughs> What's devotion look like? First of all, it's, it's hard to be devoted in absentia, okay? I mean, you can't say you're devoted to a cause, but you never show up. That doesn't make any sense. You'll find your devotion is much more meaningful and much more recognizable if you're actually at a meeting when you're devoted to something, whether it be the church or your work or whatever. It just makes sense. I mean, it's kind of a small thing, but it's kind of an important thing. Show up. Secondly, participation. When it comes to a church or small group, I think it, it, it really holds true the adage is, you know what? What you get out of it is what you put into it. What you get out of it is what you put into it. Effective participation requires some preparation. You can't just drag yourself in your Sunday morning after staying up till 3 o'clock Saturday night and then go, okay, let's do a church. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be snoring in the second worship song probably. We need to prepare ourselves to gather together as a church. We need to prepare ourselves if we're having a small group meeting on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday. Prepare ourselves for that. If there's things we need to do, lessons we need to do, make sure we're doing it. 
participating. It means coming prayerfully prepared to apply whatever subject matter we're talking about to your life. It involves opening up, being honest with your feelings, sharing with other members. It means taking the initiative to reveal yourself rather than remaining kind of isolated on the periphery of everything. It means really applying the example that Jesus did. You know, in John 1.18, it says this. And Jesus revealed Himself in a unique way. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen the Father, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, and then it says this, has made Him known. God has made Him known. And that Greek verb there, making Him known, really means to expound or to reveal. It's the same Greek word we use when we're talking about exegesis, when we're talking about the interpretation of Scripture. You're trying to reveal the truth in the text. What John's point in that verse, 118, John 118, what he's saying is when it comes to self-revelation, God takes the initiative. He laid down an example. He revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus exegeted Himself. He revealed Himself. He made Himself known. How did He do that? By sharing His heart. By calling men around and sharing His mission and His life. Do you think He felt vulnerable sometimes? I'm sure He did. He was human. See, our problem is our pride tempts us to do just the opposite. Our pride wants us to cloak our true identity, to hide behind some fake image that we have up there. Why? Why do we want to do that? Why don't we want to open up and reveal ourselves to each other? It's pretty simple, actually. It's because we look pretty good in the dark. Stop and think about it. I remember one time I got dressed, I think it was for Sunday morning service, early morning, and uh, I was kind of doing it in the dark. Didn't want to wake up my wife. And we didn't have a, a light in the closet at that time. So I'm, you know, grabbing a shirt, kind of, you know, looks good. I'm kind of colorblind too, you know, fashion challenge, whatever you want to call it. And I remember getting to church. And nobody's here when I usually get here on a Sunday morning, so they were fine with it. <clears throat> you know, and then, you know, when my wife finally showed up, you know, what are you wearing? What, look, what is this? You know, that's not right. That doesn't match. What are you thinking? Why did I do that? Did I do it on purpose? No, but it looked good in the dark. When I was putting those clothes on, hey, it was fine. Anyone can look sharp in the dark. Darkness makes us invisible. It obscures our heart and conceals our actions. But when it comes to self-revelation, what's that do? That illuminates. It exposes who we really are. Warts and all. You see everything right out there. See, and without this honesty and this openness that Jesus expressed and laid down as an example, we can never experience the fellowship that we're talking about here on a Sunday morning or even in a small grace care group. We must be willing to open up our hearts to become accountable for our actions. 
So attendance, participation, also service. It's another way you check somebody's devotion. Are they willing to serve? You know, a lot of groups, they'll kind of come up with the attitude that's, that's it's all about a set of needs. You know, support groups are famous that way. You know, you get <clears throat> certain people with certain needs and, you know, uh, a bunch of people that are, that are dependent on... on uh, drugs or something like that, well, let's put them all together and help, you know. I understand the accountability stuff and all that. I, I, I do. But sometimes they get off on the deep end. See, it's not about just our deepest need. Because our deepest need, to be honest with you, is what? Indwelling sin and its consequences. That's our deepest need. not to say our needs don't get met in a church or, or in a small group. Hopefully they do. But hopefully they'll get met through the service that we're kind of plugged in. We're helping others grow and, and God's helping us. Remember the one another list from last week. You know, remember those, those are not optional. You know, that's something that's expected of every believer. All of them. <laughs> you can't pick and choose. It's an impressive list. Can you imagine what a church would be like if we put all those into practice through the Spirit of God? We can't do it on our own. We need the Spirit of God to live and dwell in us. We need to yield to His filling, His control. So they forsake the world. They added themselves to a local body. They were devoted by their attendance, by their participation, and by their service. And I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part, but we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because sometimes we forget, why are we doing this? We're doing it because we love Christ. We're doing it because He commands us to. That's why. Look at what C.J. Mahaney says. He says, spiritual growth and maturity simply will not happen. It won't happen apart from relationships in the local church. In relationships, we develop an accurate assessment of ourselves that is neither too favorable nor too critical. In relationships, we experience a God-ordained channel of supply spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally. See, that's why we think it's so critical that we look at this and we go, you know, before I just check this, I'm not interested at this time. Maybe I, I need to do a little praying about this. Maybe I need to ask God, you know, maybe it's not comfortable for me to go this route, but maybe you want me to. Maybe that's what he desires. Chuck Colson said this, while the church may seem to be experiencing a season of growth and prosperity, that's what you see all around us today in the church growth movement, it is failing to move people to commitment and sacrifice the very things that Christ called us to. I don't think Jesus called the disciples and says, hey, if you want to follow me, you can. Just do whatever you want. Let's go. One, two, three. No. He said, unless you're willing to lay down your life, don't even bother. Unless you're willing to deny yourself. Unless you're willing to turn your back on your own family if need be. That's what he said. I, I'm not making it up. It says it right in Scripture. And somehow we've gotten away from this commitment and this sacrifice in the Christian life. It's all become this prosperity. Let's just feel good and health, wealth and all that stuff. I didn't see that in Jesus' ministry at all. I mean, the guy didn't even have a place to lay his head. Chuck Colson goes on, he says, It is scandalous that so many believers today have such a low view of the church. 
They see their Christian lives, and this is so true, as a solitary exercise. Jesus and me. Or they treat the church as a building or a social center. They flip from congregation to congregation. Or they don't associate with any church at all. That the church is held in such low esteem reflects not only the depths of our biblical ignorance, but the alarming extent to which we have succumbed to the obsessive individualism of modern culture. Once again, it's not about me. I mean, that should be our mantra when we get up in the morning. God, it's not about me today. Fill me with your spirit. Tell me what to do. Show me where to go. So important that we understand that. That we see how God is working in and through us. And none of us have arrived. We're all in process. As we close, I want to ask you, have you been infected? Oh, that's... Is that right? Infected. Oh, well. <laughs> that was an early morning change this morning. Have you been infected? No, infected is what it should read. And, you know, have you ever had a computer virus on your computer? You probably, if, you, if, you, if you've experienced this tragedy, and it truly is a tragedy because some of those can be really nasty, um, you know, you don't realize you have this virus. You know, you're just typing along one day and, and all of a sudden, boom, things start to disappear or your computer starts to do weird things and won't restart or whatever, and you're going, whoa, what's going on? I wasn't even doing anything. Well, that virus was probably on your computer, on your hard drive for some time. And it's just all of a sudden, they even write viruses to where it'll go on your high drive, hard drive, and it'll hibernate. And then down the road on a certain date, it will rear its ugly head and wipe out all your data or whatever they wrote it to do. It's incredible. And sometimes we become infected with certain things, and we don't even realize it. First thing is the church light virus. <laughs> church light. You know, in other words, taste great, less filling. You know, just give me a place where I can be entertained, come and hang out. I don't want any of this commitment stuff, sacrifice, definitely not there. I'm not going there with you, sorry. Or the feelings virus. You know, this really depends heavily on subjective impressions. You know, that, that's, that kind of comes to service when you ask somebody, well, you know, are you, are you, uh, are you, are you planning to be involved in ministry or maybe sign up for religion? Well, you know, I just don't feel God's leading me in that direction right now. Get away from me. You know, they want to talk about it. Their feelings. They're, they're, they, they just think that God somehow speaks through their feelings. Crazy. Or the ambition virus. Kind of the idea that, you know, it's, it's just, it's all about what you're doing. It's nothing about what God wants to do through you. It's all about your agenda. Uh, that's, that's very dangerous because it's not about your agenda. It's not about my agenda. It's about God's agenda or even the church alternative virus. In other words, well, you know, yeah, I know there's a local church and I know I should be committed and stuff, but, you know, I, I, I volunteer over here and I do this and I do that or whatever. What do you do at your church? Well, I don't do anything there because I'm so busy over here with these, you know, uh, parachurch organizations or whatever it might be. And like I said, beloved, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but, you know, this is something that has, has really worked its way deep down into the hearts of every church. 
And we need to stop and we need to repent before God and say, hey, you know what? We don't want to be <laughs> like this. Or the last one there, the leisure virus. I like that one. You know, that's basically everything else is, is uh, subservient to your, your leisure life. Um, everything else is, you know, it's all about you and, you know, the boat on the weekend or whatever you, you got going on. It's not about Sunday church. That's definitely just, you know, that's kind of low on the thing. If we make it, we make it. But, you know, if there's a game on 10 o'clock Sunday morning and it's a playoffs, man, I'm not going to be in church just to let you know. You know, that, that's not right. That's, that's, that's sinful behavior for a Christian. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just saying what Scripture says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. So we have to keep in check all these things. And see, that's where when we come together in a small group, it helps us to keep each other in check. It's not, it's, it's not about, you know, forcing you to do something. That's not what this is about. It's about saying, why wouldn't you? I mean, if Christ died for the church and you're a Christian and you're part of the church, wouldn't you want to grow in your relationship with others and in His Word and grow in your, your walk with the Lord? John Calvin said this, the decline of the church is more due to laziness than wickedness. More due to laziness than wickedness. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. And Lord, we thank You that we have a place here, a building to gather in, there where we can gather as Your church, the church that You died for. Lord, I don't know who's here this morning, but maybe there may be somebody here who has yet to put their faith and their trust in Christ. Maybe they think it's all about them. Maybe they think it's all about what they do. The answer to both of those is it's not. It's all about your relationship with a holy God. And your sin that everybody has, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have that sinful problem. And it needs to be dealt with. And the only way you can deal with it is not by doing something, because there's nothing you can do to wash away your sin. Nothing. It's only through the sacrifice, through the blood of Christ. And that's where I call upon you this morning to bow your heart, bow your knee to the Savior. Acknowledge your sinfulness before Him. Cry out to Him. Maybe in your past you have religion and all that. That doesn't cut it. I'm not talking about joining this church. However, I think that would be a good church. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about committing your life to Christ. One of the most important decisions you'd ever make. And your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. Heaven or hell. Eternal time with the, in, in the presence of, of Jesus or eternal absence from God altogether in a place of torment. God I want you to open your heart to Him this morning. Cry out to Him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. If you need more information, ask God. Give me more information. I need more information. I need to understand this more. Seek out somebody to talk to. Believers, I pray that we would take this seriously this morning. I pray that we would not just dismiss it, but that we would seriously pray about where you 
where God wants us to be involved in our local body. Father, we thank you this morning. Pray you'd dismiss us with your blessing after this song. And Lord, also bless the ladies as they gather with uh, Lorraine and Stansfield for the uh, baby shower afterwards. And, and just uh, give us a, a good remainder of the day. Uh, we trust you for it and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.